welcome to the ESG Factor podcast, brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. This series focuses on the practical integration of environmental, social and governance, or ESG factors, hence the name, the ESG Factor. This series will have in-depth interviews with those working across ESG in a wide variety of functions, including indices, fixed income, equities and research. This episode focuses on ESG and equities. I'm going to pass over to Vincent now to give you a little bit more context. Thanks, Emer. Our discussion today is on public equities and the incorporation of ESG and responsible investing. For our listeners who may not work in the investment industry, when we talk about equities, we're just talking about ownership of a company. Public equities just means the shares are traded on a public exchange. Rather than just buying shares in individual companies, most investors tend to invest in funds that hold a diversified range of companies. Funds can be passive, where they follow a predetermined index. For example, the MSCI World has a basket of around 1,600 stocks globally. Or they can be active, where the investment manager will select a basket of stocks to try and outperform the index. Where this becomes relevant from a responsible investment perspective, think back to our podcast on stewardship. The investment manager has been entrusted to manage money for the investors in their funds. Part of that responsibility is engaging with the boards of these companies, voting on shareholder resolutions, etc. What we refer to as active ownership. In our discussion today, we'll cover what ESG means in a public equity context, the motivations for employing a responsible investment approach, and we can get into some of the mechanics around the implementation. Most importantly, our guest that we're going to discuss these issues with is Anthony McGuinness. Anthony is the Head of Quantitative Strategies and the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Irish Life Investment Managers. He leads the research and development of ILM's quantitative investment strategies and portfolio solutions for the institutional and retail market. So, Anthony, thanks for coming on the podcast today. You're actually our first Irish guest, so it makes it extra strange to be recording remotely. For listeners, we're recording on Friday, April 17th. We're more than a month into this lockdown. We don't really know when we're going to escape. How are things on your end, given the volatile markets that we're in? Hi, Vincent. Good morning and um, hello to all your listeners. Uh, it has been an interesting period for the whole business, coming to grips with uh, working remotely en masse in a very short space of time. Probably caused a lot of anxiety initially, kind of shifting uh, a business with 3,000 staff and a big customer base um, right across all corners of, of Ireland and also internationally. We have business into Europe, business into North America, and uh, we've done it very successfully, thankfully. Interesting when you're managing money as well and making decisions on allocations to global equities or to fixed income or to real assets and property how you can manage all of that in a remote context. But I think it's a real statement to everyone's determination and, and desire to do what's right for the customer during this period that we've, we've managed to deliver very well, thankfully. I think e even more strange, I've four children at home and uh, interesting times managing them and managing the workload. And I'm sure everyone's experiencing similar who's in that boat, but um, we, we just try and find our feet and do the best and stay positive during this period. I'd imagine the complexities of global commerce is less challenging than your children at, at times. <laughs> uh, sometimes, all right, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, look, it's, it's all good fun. They're keeping me positive. They're very positive about the whole thing, missing some of their friends, but uh, interesting homeschooling. We're all kind of innovating in this period. I have to say technology has been fantastic right across every spectrum. So we've been doing for our own customers, 
lots of engagement, probably more engagement and communications than maybe on a normal basis. So we've had webinars going weekly, bi-weekly. Um, we've had podcast series started on our, our, our own investment strand. Um, and then we've had virtual meetings with multiple clients over this period. So it's been actually a real statement in terms of innovation, <laughs> maybe out of necessity, but um, it's worked very well, I think. Absolutely. And there's, there, there's that, uh, what is now an old joke in terms of uh, who has had the, who or what has had the most uh, impact on transformation in a company. Is it, you know, the CTO, the, the director of business transformation or COVID-19? And, and really, it, it absolutely is COVID-19. The, the lengths that, that people have been able to go to uh, in, in ways that they would never have see, thought possible two months ago is, has been remarkable. Yeah, and I think actually, you know, there's definitely, I don't think it's going to change uh, a desire to get back into the office for many people, but um, it definitely does accelerate probably a movement towards more flexible working arrangements. And uh, this actually relates in somewhat to what we're talking about today, but also how companies will adapt in terms of facilitating more flexibility for their employees, et cetera, um, and innovating in terms of embracing digitalization within their businesses. There's been so many companies that have had to move online very quickly and rapidly in terms of servicing their customers. And it's just been remarkable. Maybe that innovation has stemmed from necessity, but it'll be interesting the world that we return to when this is passed. Yeah, definitely. Moving on from Corona and getting into the investment stuff, you've been with Irish Life about 16, 17 years. So you've seen responsible investing, I suppose, evolve within your own organization. And certainly Irish Life have been doing a lot in the world of responsible investing over the last couple of years. So do you maybe want to give us a snapshot of, of how things have evolved over that time? Yeah, just for your listeners who might know us, um, so Irish Life Investment Managers is the asset management arm of Irish Life Assurance, which is a um, large, the largest life insurance operator. So we manage investment savings and pensions for over a million customers here in Ireland. And also our business uh, manages money, as I said earlier, for institutional clients in Europe and in North America. So we have about 84 billion uh, euros under management that was a little bit higher at the end of the year thus is the um the impact of volatility uh, on markets so it's a little bit lower at the moment but we manage those assets across equity so global companies fixed income so global debt commercial property cash and then obviously we manage a number of multi-asset funds which are effectively our core pension proposition to investors which give investors the opportunity to access diversified global investments. So we have seen in that context, ESG move from very much the periphery in terms of maybe being mostly of interest to investors who might be in the faith-based community, religious orders, endowments, much more into the mainstream now where it's in, in the conversation nearly at every trustee pension board that we go to right across defined contribution to defined benefit schemes. This is very much now at the forefront of people's minds when they consider investments. And I think it really is an extension of really that concept of responsible investment, good stewardship, good governance of an investment mandate. People are thinking about environmental, social and governance factors as another lens to look at their portfolio and their investment decision making. So I think that's really kind of been the big shift and it has accelerated. We can talk about some of the reasons for that, 
but certainly over the last two to three years, two years in particular, a significant acceleration of that. And, and some of that maybe is linked to the E element, so climate and climate change and how much that has been at the forefront of people's uh, minds recently. Like we've seen huge global awareness of, of climate shifting and changing and a need to react uh, proactively to try and uh, address that, not just for this current generation, but future generations. So I think that impact has um, really been a turning point and an accelerant for the whole area of ESG and awareness. And do you think it's regulatory driven or do you think the fact that, like, you know, as I said, we're all aware of the changes in the environment, but are you seeing more consultants, more asset owners coming to you guys first rather than you having to lead with solutions to say, okay, these are these are big risks that we need to consider. Or are you seeing it on the other side where clients are actually leading with the, the discussions and saying, hey, what solutions do you have for us? It's probably a bit of both. So as we've seen it evolve, say, within our own domestic market here in Ireland, we probably saw our international customers, in particular our European customers, lead initially. So we manage money for a number of pension funds in Holland uh, and, and investment partners that we work with there. They would have been at the forefront, um, I suppose, the vanguard of ESG or considering environmental, social and governance factors within their investment portfolios. So we saw that occur initially. That kind of gave us insights that we were able to then bring to our customers to have informed conversations with them about what best practice and leading leading practice was in relation to incorporating ESG. But definitely regulators are now stepping up. There is obviously going to be the adoption of IORPS 2, which is the European Pensions Regulation, whereby trustees are going to have to either comply or explain why they're not incorporating ESG considerations in terms of investment decision making, in terms of uh, assessing investment risk, and also the provision of investment pension solutions to their members. So there's definitely a regulatory driver here. We're seeing that also beyond pensions in terms of financial services companies much more push now from you know the Bank of England, ECB and other financial authorities saying to financial services companies who are financing, say, fossil fuels or brown uh, sectors of the economy, what is your risk to a transition to a, a zero carbon economy? Quantify that, disclose that so that investors can actually see how much risk potentially from a counterparty perspective, from a market risk perspective, from potentially a stranded asset perspective, there may be on their balance sheet. So there's definitely a regulatory move here in terms of raising awareness, but then also forcing disclosure, which um, has definitely also also added. I think the other, the other third pillar to this is um, a greater realization and a depth of research being done right across the industry and in academia improving improvement in terms of data and proof points around the value of incorporating ESG into your investment process from a risk-adjusted return perspective. So what is the benefit in terms of managing volatility at an overall portfolio? You know, we typically think of managing risk by maybe looking at certain criteria like the, the company's leverage ratios, the company's exposure to maybe valuation risk, and also the volatility of that company's stock price. But maybe a lot of those factors don't actually address, give us an insight in terms of well, what's the environmental risk that that company may be facing down the road? Actually, what type of good governance or bad governance does it have at its board level? 
Also, what level of reputational risk might that firm be exposed to because of supply chain issues? So ES&G give us an insight into those different dimensions in terms of understanding risk and opportunity from an investment perspective that may not be there otherwise. Absolutely. And can I just ask a quick question in terms of the, so and something that actually I, I struggle with myself in terms of the, the business case for ESG. So the, the return um, on, on companies with, with high ESG performance is something that will, will help those who, who aren't committed to the, to the cause anyway. But, but my own personal struggle with it is that it's something that should be done anyway. You know, it's the, it's the right thing to do. And the, 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 the business case, as, as it were, is, should be secondary or could be secondary. And so that's, that's, that's one element of it. But something that and we spoke a little bit about the, the corona uh, pandemic and the, the impact that that's having on our ways of working, but also in terms of the, the, the shift on prioritization from for so so far it's been on uh, a little bit on g the go, the governance element has 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 had a lot of focus over the last uh, few years environmental probably more so over the last 18 to 24 months but i think we're now and you mentioned it in terms of supply chain i think we're now beginning to see it shift a little bit towards the the s piece as well do you have a perspective on that yeah, I think there's two parts to that question. Like the first part about we should do it from a values perspective. I think we need to appreciate that certainly from our perspective, when the clients we deal with, they're, they have multiple different objectives um, and mon- multiple different perspectives on this. But what we've been, what we've done is a huge amount of research looking at different ESG data providers and assessed quite rigorously the impact of ESG would have on an investment portfolio's risk and return. And we were able to conclude from that work that incorporating ESG was definitely beneficial from a risk perspective, but it didn't seem to do harm from a return perspective either. So we were comfortable that incorporating this, we were able to enhance our risk control for clients and customers, which is an important consideration, especially in the pension endowment space while also um, not penalizing the investment opportunity set. So we can talk a little bit about how we approach that. But I think there is definitely the opportunity to say that ESG is, and and we're getting more data even during this coronavirus scenario, uh, stress test at the moment, to support the case for ESG as a mainstream investment thesis. So we're definitely seeing people who have values and principles guiding them that direction. But I think we're seeing probably and will likely see a much more mainstreaming of ESG uh, as as we come out of this epidemic and as we move forward over the, the next number of years, just given its performance delivery and much more concrete evidence to support that. The second piece of your question was around that ES and G and whether we're seeing S become more prevalent. I think that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting one. I I do believe that probably S has um, and what that means for for people just uh, maybe who may not be as close to this. We would see S being around, as you say, supply chain, a focus on good kind of human rights and an awareness of kind of labour standards. And through this, it's interesting what companies have done in terms of trying to support where possible their employees and how stakeholders or investors are assessing that. So it's it's definitely, I think, we're definitely going to see a change in terms of, I would believe, supply chain and structuring of supply chain going forward. 
because this epidemic probably exposes the risks to having all of your supply chain offshore. So there may be more of an onshoring of certain elements of supply chain. And in that, there's going to be have to be a justification for potentially the additional benefit in terms of risk or ability to keep your uh, your business processes running against potentially the additional cost of the uh, marginal cost of that supply chain. So I think that will come into focus. But, you know, it, it's um, it's a perception. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Like governance has been well established uh, as an investment principle for many years. So as you say, rightly, G has been there and very prominent. But even despite that, we still have quite different accepted practices globally. Whereas in the US, you can have a CEO and a chair being the same person, whereas that is very much frowned upon in the European Union and, and in the UK. So there's still different practices. And I suppose you need to be able to understand the different practices and establish your view and why you believe that view is correct if if you don't agree with that practice in that region. Similarly with S, I think definitely there's a focus on, and we talked about it earlier at the start, that kind of idea of flexible arrangements for staff, good supply chain, good labor standards within your company. We would see these as maybe just the very minimum in terms of acceptable level of uh, adherence. But I think the whole area of ESG is going to come out of this a much stronger and more mainstream component of, of many investors' um, decision-making and, and, and good governance. Absolutely. Because actually it, it correlates nicely to a conversation I was having this morning in terms of the, and it's interesting that you said, you know, things like the supply chain element of it is it's a very minimum in terms of, of S, because often that is that is the focus. What would you see as what you would like to, to see more emphasis on in terms of the, the societal piece? I think if we if we step back for a moment, just even around ESG, just in general, we have multiple different data sources and data vendors, and that's natural. This is a growing space. People need data, good data to be able to incorporate into their investment processes. They need to good data in terms of being able to make sound investment decisions. And we also need good data in terms of managing the impact of those investment decisions from an ESG perspective. So what we would certainly like to see is, um, and, and we are getting that better data on all of these different factors, including S, better frameworks in terms of disclosure. So uh, there are a number of those that we're signed up to. The UNPRI, which uh, sets out a set of standards for the incorporation of ESG in terms of investment decision making, investment governance, various different frameworks in terms of carbon disclosure and, and, and reporting. But then also, I think, benchmarking around this so that customers have an understanding of well, what is a good ESG outcome? What is a good ESG impact? And that kind of stems across ESG. I, I suppose I'm, I'm not answering directly what you're saying about S, but I think these are kind of some of the big industry challenges for, for your listeners that we still need to improve upon at, at, a, at an industry level. So, you know, more data, better data, better frameworks, and I think some coalescing around what at an industry level the right framework is, and then also benchmarking in terms of disclosure. So it makes it easier for customers who maybe don't have large advisory firms supporting them or consultancies that a lot of our customers who are pension clients can understand the impact and benefit of what this is delivering for them from, a, from an investment outcome perspective. 
You mentioned the Netherlands, and um, when I was doing some research on developing responsible investment policies, the Netherlands tended to be one of the countries with actually very good responsible investment policies in place. If you look at some of the big pension schemes over there. And when I think about responsible investing, I've said it a few times that it's very much a philosophical journey in terms of arriving at your own set of values or beliefs. So you can't really say to the investment manager, impose your values and beliefs on us through your investment funds. But at the same time, as an investment firm, you have to arrive at a place where this is what we believe in terms of ESG and responsible investing and Irish life a big organization. You've had to go through a lot of work to arrive at where you are today. I realize you're from a very quantitative background. So numbers, data, that's your world. Is there other people within your organization where you're sitting around the table and you maybe you see the world a little bit different, one through the lens, kind of through data and what that, why that's important. Others may be looking at it from a societal perspective and saying, we need to have strong values here and what we, what we stand for engaging with these companies. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think it's a bit of both. Customer first is one of our core values within the business. So we would have looked at this from a customer perspective and asked ourselves, how can we integrate ESG in a way that we feel improves outcomes for our investors at, at its very simplest form? And in thinking about that, yes, uh, those with a quant mindset might want to say, prove it to me. So show me that integrating ESG in the past delivers better outcomes. But we have lots of challenges with that. I mentioned data already. So data is patchy. There's different data providers. What frameworks and methodologies are they using to collect data on different companies? Uh, What disclosure practices do different companies have in terms of calculating what carbon output they may have, etc. So there's challenges around saying definitively that ESG or being a, or even going down the route of trying to prove that ESG is beneficial when you only maybe have eight, nine good years of data. And I say I use good because um, that, that evolves as well. We then also had to say, OK, well, let's do our best in terms of the quantitative assessments that we can do because people do need proof points. But then also thinking on a going forward basis, what drivers do we see here from a risk perspective? So if we if we don't incorporate ESG, what are we leaving our customers exposed to? Well, we're we're leaving them exposed to potentially regulatory risk, as we see greater adoption of ESG in terms of the regulatory environment and 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 set of considerations. We're leaving our customers potentially lacking choice and opportunity because our customers we're seeing changing dynamics there in terms of demographics, in terms of profile, and their preferences and choices are definitely moving. So an adoption of ESG kind of sits potentially well with some. So that's kind of an investment offering uh, perspective. But then also, I think it's from, um, you know, going back to that idea of what are we delivering here for our investors? And what we're really trying to deliver is that sustainable long-term return. So therefore, we believe is it right to incorporate ESG factors in terms of determining what is the best portfolio in terms of delivering that sustainable uh, long-term return? So we don't want to penalize on the return side, but sustainability, we want to be able to deliver as well. So if we if we leave our clients exposed to stranded asset risk by not incorporating these factors, that can have a big overhead. If we're leaving uh, our investors susceptible to changes in technology, maybe not re- recognizing that in our investment decision making around a shift from 
old technology to new technology in terms of the delivery of energy and uh, a pivot towards a more green a green economy. So that leaves our, our investors susceptible to that risk or maybe not getting exposure to that opportunity. So we're thinking about it from multiple dimensions, not just trying to say, okay, over the last 10 years, did this work or not? Because that's a little bit oversimplifying both the assessment of risk and understanding maybe the opportunity that may be ahead from incorporating these factors. So there's a balance effectively. Yeah, I think that's an important point because, you know, the challenges of the next 15 years are very different to the challenges of the past 15 years. One of the things that um, investors are probably most familiar with with ESG is the idea that it's implemented um, through active management so that fund managers are picking companies based on how they're performing on an ESG basis, etc. But it can actually be incorporated in a passive environment as well, where you as a manager responsible for a big pool of capital can influence companies. Is that is that really possible? If you're managing a portfolio to a particular index, can you still exert some degree of influence over companies? Yeah, so I think um, what Passive is has evolved significantly over the last number of years. So um, again, for your listeners, I would be responsible for managing both active and passive type portfolios are, are certainly overseeing the management of those and how we use them in our product set. We use both uh, in delivering pension offerings to our investors. So in that context, when we wanted to incorporate ESG, we utilize both active and passive approaches. And I think what we need to think about here is when we talk about integrating ESG, what do we mean? So we definitely have seen much more explicit incorporation of ESG. So that would be systematically incorporating ESG and measuring what impact you're having in terms of improvement of an overall portfolio's ESG characteristics. What's the environmental impact improvement that you're seeing in terms of maybe carbon intensity or carbon footprint reduction or carbon transition risk reduction. Um, So really measuring that in an explicit way whereas maybe some other fundamental active managers might incorporate that in implicitly by saying, okay, as part of the company assessment, we also consider DSG factors. I think you're going to see a movement to see best in class, which will be adoption of both. So explicit incorporation will also mean some judgment around well, what do you mean? What are you incorporating at an ESG level? And how is that nuance for different sectors, etc.? So there's the explicit incorporation can be done both in an active and on a passive basis and we have incorporated both in that context in terms of tilting portfolios both passive portfolios and active portfolios to recognize one maybe uh, through exclusions at a minimum level a certain level of minimum esg alignment two tilting on companies that we feel demonstrate better ESG characteristics and underweighting companies within a sector that may expose or be uh, demonstrating uh, worse than average ESG characteristics. And then the the third element here would be engagement. So using our voting rights in all those companies that we hold, both on an active and a passive basis, to really kind of align with our ESG philosophies within those portfolios. So challenging around governance, challenging around disclosure and environmental issues and um, social issues, human rights issues, and ensuring alignment in terms of the companies we're invested in 
the value sets that we have within those portfolios for investors and ensuring that companies are adhering to best practice in those areas. So there is a, a number of a number of strands here that we can do both on a passive and an active basis, and probably the degree to which you do both might be uh, might differ just depending on the on the underlying client objective. Just for listeners who are kind of thinking about uh, proxy voting, a company will will come up with a resolution, and various shareholders will have to vote on on the resolution. So. Within Irish Life, do you have a specific theme that is responsible for managing that voting process in line with a policy that's in place with a particular fund mandate or the, is it the firm mandate that they will vote according to? So what we've tried to do is establish um, a firm policy on this. So this would be then demonstrating uh, right across our book of assets. So for, for, your, for your listeners, we would have clients who would mandate us to track an MSCI world mandate or an S&P mandate of global companies, which basically means that we hold companies aligned with their market cap or market capitalization. So we can't take companies out there. We can't uh, tilt companies we have to hold in the market cap aligned basis. So our, our approach then would be to engage with companies in that portfolio aligned with the values um, and principles. And this will be disclosed to all our investors aligning with those ESG values that we believe in at a firm level and engage companies on that basis. So we do use third parties to assist us in terms of proxy voting, um, and that would be pretty established at a firm level. We then also engage with specialists to help us in terms of engaging directly with companies. And what we're seeing, I think, as well, is a movement more towards collective action. So where shareholders are pooling their voting rights and pooling their total assets under management to align with certain themes. So be that environmental themes, be that uh, governance and social themes. So aligning with these other investors is another way of, of impacting change and getting companies at an aggregate level to, to shift in a direction. So we have, we've used multiple different tools internally. But yes, I think you're, you're touching basically on another point, which is around integration at a firm level. You know, we've been very clear to have clear executive sponsorship at chief executive level down to you know CIO level myself right across the investment firm at a senior fund management level to align with ESG within our business and we have set up then separate committees with senior management in place to agree and sign off on the direction that we're going in terms of the type of principles and values that we want to vote on and and where we will take a stance against so this has to be coordinated, it has to be joined up, and it has to be sponsored at a very senior level within the business to really make this work for you within your firm. So I think we, we, we very much moved in that direction at quite an early stage, and uh, it's been quite beneficial for us in terms of making sure we have alignment and, and can have clear clear outcomes for, for investors when we talk about engagement. And the fact that it's coming from the top, are more employees within Irish Life, within your organization, kind of parking up when they hear ESG and kind of actually engaging more in, in the subject themselves and trying to understand how it applies within their own role? Yeah, so we've, um, I heard a phrase called hub and spoke approach, whereby you might have a, a central unit which would have core responsibilities for ESG, but then also that that would filter into different teams by having executive sponsorship for each investment function and then also expertise within each investment team around ESG. So we've kind of a, we've gone for that approach. So 
we've brought expertise into the business. So we've hired a new head of responsible investing, Cathy Ryan, uh, who's joined us from Aviva Investors in the UK, who is going to be is our head of responsible investment. Cathy has executive responsibility for ESG, supported by all of our executive fund management team. And then within each team, we have ESG specialists also. But what's been remarkable for me is this journey. We've seen huge interest, desire, motivation and commitment from all our teams to really get embrace this. So people are, are, are very motivated to get involved. We put out voluntarily uh, training around ESG to um, the UMPRI, and that was massively subscribed to. And all of our investment teams now subscribe to doing this this channel of ESG uh, certification uh, within the firm, which is uh, which is very positive. But it was great to see that being voluntarily embraced, as opposed necessarily having to to kind of uh, issue a diktat that everyone must do it. So. Um, you know, I think that was very encouraging. And then also right across each team, because we're operating on a multi-asset basis. So it's not just equity, whereby my quant team might be driving the, the decisions. We're seeing interest right across our indexation teams where we have, um, you know, different approaches for different customers right across our fixed income. Within our real estate, we're signed up to the GRES-B, which is the global real estate ESG standards and have done huge work there in terms of ratings. So we're seeing effectively the mainstreaming of ESG within our business. This is a core investment function for us. It doesn't sit in isolation. It has to be embedded in the teams and you have to have that executive and and, and bottom-up commitment to delivering it for clients. So thankfully that's happened in a, in very much a voluntary and garnered a lot of momentum within the organization in terms of the getting to this point for us. Absolutely. It's, it's great to see. And actually it, what you said about the, the voluntary nature of it uh, really resonated with me. It's something that so, so what brought the, the collaboration between Vincent and I together was around the knowledge gap. What are the skills that need to be empowered in people really to, to, to truly be able to, to make a difference in this space? So like the, the hub and spoke approach uh, that, that you outlined there is, is great, as is the, the training on the UN, um, the UN piece. But from, from your mind, and you know, not not just within necessarily within Irish life, but in, broadly within the within the industry, what are the key skills that perhaps those that aren't specialized uh, in the space already, but the, the more mainstream people, what, what are the key skills that they need to, to, to have? Yeah, I think there was maybe a little bit of a thinking about ESG on the periphery uh, in the past. And uh, you might have had people who were looking at ESG and disclosures in isolation. Now there's much more of a closer integration or marriage between ESG and all investment functions in the firm. Um, and you're going to see that right across the industry. I think understanding the regulatory backdrop and what's coming there, trying to be able to clearly articulate to people the benefit of this. So I do think data and and analysis is important. Uh, so they're they're kind of, you know, your your statistical mathematics, quantitative skills. But then also leveraging, I suppose, your traditional analyst strategist type approach, looking forward at companies and, and, and macro conditions, portfolio construction. It's kind of all these different elements, but expanding them to integrate ESG considerations or integrate that ESG lens into those different strands of the business. So even like within investment risk at the moment for us, we have seen over the last 12 months a huge amount of scenario testing and stress testing of our portfolios for various different disclosure requirements, which are coming from at a group level in Canada 
understanding effectively carbon disclosure requirements and, and risk at a, at a fund level. So that's changing kind of the nature of investment risk to carbon risk assessment. But it's just another extension of investment risk, because if that carbon assessment isn't done, well, then you're, you're, you're missing out on another dimension of your overall portfolio risk. So I think it's um, building out that knowledge base and understanding how you can, you can then incorporate that into the overall firm right across all functions is very important. And you mentioned carbon there. We had the head of responsible investing for global fixed income from BlackRock on, and uh, she gave us some very interesting insights on climate risk. But one of the things that she did say was that it's basically a misprice risk. I suppose climate risk is very hard for people to get their heads around because they think about the environment and the impact it's having on on the likes of Australia and these places that had the bushfires, etc. But from an investment perspective, where you're looking at portfolios, you're looking at uh, raw data, you know, how do you start to kind of get to terms with it? Something like climate risk, which is obviously huge. So I, I think the systems and tools to support us in, in doing that are, are improving all the time and data. So if you think about any investment project that you might be investing in for the next 10, 15 years, you are effectively given funding to that project to, to build infrastructure, to develop servicing. In that, you need to understand in giving that funding, what counterparty risks are you running? What market risks are you running? What reputational and brand risks are you also running? And I think what we're seeing across financial services firms is much greater awareness of the importance of climate in that context. As you say, the bushfires um, that we saw in Australia, which so vividly captured the the impact uh, that we can have at a societal level and an environmental level of, uh, of, of global warming. But also we're going to see this in terms of rising physical risk, in terms of increased frequency of these type of weather-related events, and recognise then an ability to understand and assess these risks. So the, I think the good thing about financial services and, uh, and investment risk is an ability to measure and understand long-term risks and, and probably then discount those back to understand what their price is today. But I think your other uh, commentator is very right in saying that that risk is probably not fully appreciated. It's probably through greater disclosure, through greater uh, measurement and um, understanding of the impact of these risks will we only see them properly priced into investment markets. This COVID-19, which event that we're experiencing at the moment, if you think about it, we've also had that effectively lead to a demand shock, a supply shock in terms of supply chains being shut down, demand shock in terms of economies being shut down. And at the same time, an energy price war in terms of the uh, kind of tensions at OPEC level now at the moment, and a huge price shock in terms of energy prices. So this is a shock right across the global system and probably aligned to what, um, you know, Mark Carney would have defined as this kind of two degree type shock. So this is a good asset test now in terms of different firms, assessment of credit risk, counterparty risk, market risk related to not appreciating these type of um, left tail events. I think it was Mark Carney as well, just to use him again, that he was saying this time, maybe last year, that the left tail events are now the central scenario for firms going forward that are involved in insurance and reinsurance related to climate. So I, I think he's probably one of the better commentators in this area, while he might be a central banker and, and not maybe a climate specialist. He, he definitely understands the risk associated to, um, to these type of events 
on balance sheets of banks, on balance sheets of insurance companies. So really understanding these risks will become ever more important to investors and understanding the exposures from a return and risk and counterparty perspective, I think, going forward. Yeah, I think the important thing is that we see the cultural shift in terms of the awareness at an investor level, because, I mean, it is hard for investment managers at the same time, because if the risk is mispriced, that potentially means that a company is earning a higher return for a given level of risk. So you being a prudent and cautious investment manager and saying these mispriced risks, we actually think they're much bigger risks. So we're not going to hold that company in our portfolio. All the while over those three, four or five years, those, that company is making higher returns. And then all of a sudden that, that high impact, low probability event that you priced at a better level has hit and that company has fallen. That, that share price has got hit hard. And that's one of the challenges. I know even been on the investment consultancy side and the advisory side, you're working with managers and each quarter there's reviews and you're looking at the performance versus whether it's the index for a passive manager or whether it's a benchmark for an active manager. And I think the, the awareness has to come on that other side so that when they're talking to investment managers, they can understand that you guys are saying, look, this risk is a big risk and this is why we're incorporating in this way. In the short term, there could be impacts from a return perspective, but over the long term, we're aiming for long-term sustainable risk-adjusted returns. I feel like if we could get to that point of awareness around some of this stuff, that we could have more meaningful discussions. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the climate um, factor, if you want to call it, short, medium and long-term risks is how I would think of it. The short run being um, effectively, well, what is the near-term market pricing of these issues? But really, these climate events are going to play out over, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years and beyond. But in that time span, we're already seeing huge amounts of CAPEX towards green technology and, and moving towards, at an accelerated pace, a, a greener economy. And I think coming out of COVID-19, the EU has doubled down effectively on that commitment to a green deal now with finance ministers saying that, yes, we want to align this stimulus package with the development of a greener economy. Unfortunately, we're probably seeing maybe short term some pullback in terms of environmental regulation in the US. But I think medium term, we still have a lot of the motivation and drivers at a global level to deliver on this kind of green deal. So there's different timeframes and horizons over which it's a big statement to say all that risk isn't in the price today. But I think it's also a big statement to say that we understand all the risks at this point. So it's effectively being prudential by recognizing that these are risk factors and prudential to incorporate them. And I think it's only through the incorporation of these type of factors will we be able to measure them for our customers. If we ignore them, which is, you know, don't incorporate ESG factors, then I think we are leaving our investors exposed to potentially large shocks because COVID is, is subsuming all risks at the moment. But I think after that, there's another big C risk, which is climate related. And, and I do believe that climate expands across more than just E. There is societal impacts here. There is uh, governance issues here in terms of the impact that this can have at a reputational level, at a brand level, in terms of uh, supply chain, in terms of all other factors. We're seeing the social pain that many Australians suffered last year. So I think this has a, a much more broader impact than just the E element in ESG. So you sound like a bit of an optimist in terms of the outlook post-COVID. I mean, some people would say, 
ESG or, or more socially conscious investing is going to take a hit because people are just focused on growth. And, you know, we've, some of the numbers in terms of unemployment are, are fairly staggering. We, we don't know where we're going to end up when, when this all ends. But would you be hopeful that when we do focus on restarting the economy and, and bringing back economic growth and creating jobs that there's there's I suppose, a renewed focus on the importance of long-term sustainability? I think there's definitely some near-term risks that, you know, need to be managed through. So I think certain areas we could see maybe a derailment short-term of commitments, like we've obviously seen kind of COP being pushed out a year and concerns around that. But I think it was very encouraging to see the statement from the Europeans, uh, European financial ministers in terms of a further commitment to that Green Deal in terms of the stimulus package, which is huge, both in a monetary and in a, in a fiscal perspective. And also monetary authorities can effectively, we have had um, massive QE, but we could also have a green QE in certain ways in terms of the type of bonds that, that monetary authorities uh buy in, in, in their quantitative easing programs and how they direct that capital flow. We're also seeing greater regulation and appreciation and disclosure of, of the, the risks that we've been talking about through this. So I think medium term and long term, there is still those those factors, that, that positive momentum behind this. And I think we're certainly seeing much more proactive engagement at a local level, at trustee boards, uh, consultancies, even even corporates, uh, some of the corporates that we would speak to, CFOs, understanding and appreciating the impact that these factors are having in terms of driving capital flow, driving financing, impacting financing decisions. And you saw that from a number of the big oil majors coming out and giving commitments towards a 2050 uh, zero carbon target, which is a big statement from an oil major, but it also probably gives you an indication of where CapEx spend is going over the next number of years. So I think I think if you look long term here, there is growing evidence that also from a financial perspective, this is material from a risk perspective, and also there's significant opportunities for investors here. And in that context, I would definitely be optimistic. And I think, you know, very short term, while there might be some challenges and larger than maybe ESG, what has been interesting is the delivery of ESG over this window has been very positive. Um, and I think that will make people sit up and notice. Well, on, on that positive note, we might uh, end our podcast. And I think the fact that we're even recording this ESG Factor podcast in the middle of the lockdown from all parts of the country uh, remotely on a software that I've never heard of before is probably testament to the fact that we're all some way committed to this cause anyway. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for listening to another episode of the ESG Factor. If you have any comments or questions on this episode or the show in general, please email desgfactor at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. This series is brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. ESG Ireland is an independent knowledge centre focused on delivering taught leadership, education and the latest developments on ESG in decision making. Find out more by visiting ESG.ie or at ESG Ireland on social media. The Institute of Banking is a recognised college of UCD. It's a professional network of over 34,000 individuals working in financial services and is a centre of excellence in the provision of specialist education and lifelong learning to the financial services sector. Find out more by visiting iob.ie.